Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. I notice everyone is getting quiet. I assume that means it's time to start. We are uh, maybe 10 or 15 minutes ahead of schedule, so I get to talk longer. Is that? I don't think that's the way it works. I think they have a rug down here they pull out from under you at, at the appropriate time. Well, good morning, everybody. I appreciate very much having the uh, opportunity to present a lesson, another lesson on David. And uh, the lesson that I have chosen is, I initially titled it David in the New Testament, but I really feel like there needs to be two parts to that. One of those parts is David in the New Testament, uh, and the other part is God's promise to David through the what is called the Davidic Covenant, uh, and how that is fulfilled uh, in the New Testament. So first of all, I'd like to look at some things in the New Testament uh, to, to begin with. And as we know, as Cody pointed out to us very, in a very excellent way Wednesday night, Jesus was known as the Son of David, And these are some of the passages that I want to call your attention to uh, in in the New Testament with regard to uh, David. Uh, The first passage in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, as we know, is the genealogy of of, uh, Jesus' adopted father, Joseph. And it begins and mentions in the very first verse... uh, that uh, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So right off the bat, he's identified as the son of David. And this is putting a stamp in, in the ground or a nail in the ground, so to speak, that says that Jesus is a descendant of David by his adoptive father, Joseph, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later. In Matthew chapter 1 at verse 20, uh, Jesus uh, is noted as being the, uh, the son, should have kept my Bible open to that chapter, the son of Joseph, uh, in verse 20, but while he thought about these things, this is Joseph, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Uh, one of the things that's important to uh, recognize, I think, in this, even though we know Jesus was not the blood or birth son of Joseph, he is declared uh, by verse one that he is the legal father. So he he had the legal right as a father, and Jesus had the legal right 
as a son under their law, even though adopted, he was legally the heir and uh, he was legally entitled then to David's throne because Joseph, by uh, being a descendant of David, so he was legally entitled, but it also points out that he was divine. And then in Matthew chapter 20, at verse 31, if you want to turn with me there, uh, and I do want to go through these somewhat quickly because I want to get to uh, some important summary discussions later on. Matthew 20, at verse 31. Then the multitude warned them that they should be quiet, but they cried out all the more, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. This is just one of many passages in the New Testament where other people referred to Jesus as the son of David. So that point is made for us uh, over and over again. Uh, it is, uh, should not be any question in our mind that Jesus was uh, a descendant of David, the king. Uh, the next passage I'd like to point out to you is in Mark chapter 12 at verse 37. Uh, and this is a prophecy that David himself gave, uh, and it, and it uh, is uh, repeated from the Old Testament. Therefore, David himself calls him Lord. This is Jesus speaking to the Pharisees. How then, how is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. So David called a descendant of his, a future descendant, Lord, in Psalm chapter, or in Psalm 110, verse 1. Uh, and so Jesus discusses this, this fact and points it out to them and challenges them to, uh, to uh, resolve that question in their minds. And then when we turn to the book of Luke, to the genealogy of his mother, who was his birth mother, uh, we read there in uh, Luke uh, chapter 3, uh, verses 23 through 28, and it traces the genealogy all the way back to Adam. Uh, and David uh, is mentioned in that uh, lineage as well. So David, or Jesus rather is the legal, has the legal right to the, to the throne of David by virtue of his adoptive father Joseph and he has the birthright uh, to the throne of David uh, as the son of Mary. Now I'd like to uh, look just a little bit at uh, some of the prophecies that David gave with respect to what would happen in the future. Uh, so just to reiterate the two genealogies prove the legal right and the birthright of Jesus to the throne of David. David prophesied a number of things about Jesus. Uh, one of them is in Acts chapter 2, and that's mentioned in uh, Peter's uh, Sermon on the Mount, a uh, Sermon on the Mount, a Sermon on uh, Pentecost, rather. Uh, and uh, Acts uh, chapter 1, rather, I'm sorry, I'm I'm ahead of myself. Uh, Acts chapter 1 uh, at verse 16 where uh, it is speaking of Judas 
role and, and his place is to be fulfilled by Matthias. In Acts 1, beginning verse 16, Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in his ministry. For it is written in the book of Psalms, and this is from Psalm 69, let his dwelling place be desolate and let no one live in it. Psalm 69, verse 25. And then he goes on, and let another take his office. That's from Psalm 109, verse 8. So David, a thousand years before Jesus came to the earth, prophesied about the role that Judas would have uh, in betraying his Lord and that his place would be taken by another. David also prophesied uh, about in uh, the suffering of Jesus and he, he prophesied that in Psalm chapter 22. Uh, and I'm going to read just a couple of verses there, starting out in Psalm 22 uh, at verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It sounds familiar, doesn't it? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? And then skipping down to verse 6 in Psalm 22. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out their lip, they shake their head, saying, notice what he forecast, prophesied a thousand years before. He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Mark 15. If you want to turn there, Mark 15, we find this repeated almost word for word. Mark 15, starting at verse 29. And those who had passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priest also, mocking among themselves with the scribes, said, He saved himself. He saved others. Himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe even those who were crucified with him reviled him. So the suffering of Jesus and the mocking by those religious leaders of the time was foretold a thousand years before by David. David also foretold that none of Jesus' bones would be broken. In John chapter 19 at verse 36, For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And I know we read in some translations in 1 Corinthians 11, it mentions in some translations that the word uh, broken is added there, his broken body. But if you look back at the text, that word is italicized in most translations and is not in the original. So David's forecast exactly came true because we know that when the soldier came around to break the legs of those on the cross, 
he saw that Jesus had already passed away and there was no need to break his legs to hasten his death. Also, David uh, told about the resurrection. And this is where we come to Peter's Sermon on the Mount uh, that I mentioned earlier. Or Sermon on the Mount, I'm still saying Sermon on the Mount. Uh, his Sermon on the Day of Pentecost. Uh, that was a different preacher on the Sermon on the Mount, as I recall. Acts chapter 2, Peter speaking to the audience on Pentecost, starting at verse 25. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. And that's word for word almost from Psalm chapter 16, starting at verse 8. And Peter goes on and says, Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us today. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. That's he swore to David. This is a promise made to David, which we'll look at momentarily. He foreseeing this, that is, David foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So, he also spoke of Jesus' glorification in verse 34 of chapter 2, same same sermon, not the one on the mount, but the one on Pentecost. For David did not ascend into heavens, but he says to himself, says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. So Jesus is made king. He is resurrected according to the prophecy of David. And so today, what uh, I want to do is now, at this point, look back at the promises that were made to David in what is called the Davidic covenant. But uh, I want to pause here for just a moment and see if there are any observations <clears throat> or comments that anyone would like to make. Yes, sir, Brother Don. Uh -huh. It was. Yes. Right. The body and the bones, yes. That's right. Yeah. Other, uh, if, if you didn't hear, uh, Brother Don's pointing out that in, uh, uh, there's a distinction or should be made a distinction between Jesus' body, which is broken, and uh, his bones, which David's forecast or prophecy was speaking of. 
other thoughts? Many of the prophecies in the Old Testament uh, have a double meaning, and many of David's prophecies did. Uh, some people have counted up and said that some 16 of the Psalms alone uh, are so-called messianic prophecies, that is, prophesying about Jesus. And someone counted and said there are 92 prophecies of Jesus made in the Psalms. If that count is correct, that accounts for almost one-third of all the prophecies in the Old Testament uh, that were uh, made regarding Jesus. There were some 300-plus prophecies, and so David accounts for almost one-third of those. Any other thoughts? To introduce the Davidic, Davidic covenant, uh, I want to just mention this point. Uh, last week we talked about David as a servant. I think that the Davidic covenant and how we see it fulfilled will demonstrate how God uses his servants and particularly for his glory and for the benefit of others. This is an illustration of the various covenants that are given in the battle, starting at the bottom with the one given to Adam, then to Noah, then to Abraham, then to Moses, then to David, and finally the covenant that includes Jesus Christ, the Messianic covenant. And there are a couple of things that I'd like to point out about this before getting into the specifics of the Davidic covenant. And that is that God's covenants always looked backward and they also look forward. Uh, for instance, David's covenant looked back, as we'll see, to the covenant made with Abraham. Uh, it also looked ahead to the uh, time when Jesus would come into the world. Uh, and uh, the, the covenant that we uh, see in the New Testament, the Messianic covenant, uh, also looks backward. It looks backward to the promise made to David and the promise made to Abraham, but it also looks ahead to the future, to the promise that's made to us of the hope that we will enjoy in heaven. Now, I'd like to get to the specifics, and you want, may want to turn to Second Samuel chapter 7, and we'll sit there for just a little while. Second Samuel chapter 7. And this is the text, and it's so small, you may not be able to read it from where you're sitting, I don't know. Uh, but it begins, actually, in verse 4 of that chapter, but I've picked up uh, at verse 10, partly because I ran out of room on getting it on the slide. But uh, this, I think, contains the crux of the covenant uh, that God made with uh, David. Uh, and it begins, and I'd like to read all the way through it uh, and then make some observations about it. Beginning in verse 10. Moreover, I appoint a place for my people Israel 
and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more, nor shall the sons of wickedness, wickedness oppress them any more as previously. Since the time that I commanded the judges to be over my people and have caused you to rest from all your enemies, also the Lord tells you he will make you a house. The beginning of this in verse 10 is really that part of the covenant that's looking backward. You'll remember this is almost or very similar wording to the promise that was made to Abraham many years before the time of David when he was promised the land that they would, uh, that he was occupying at the time, it would one day be given to his descendants. So this is a really a reiteration of the promise that was made to Abraham. And then he begins uh, in verse 10, or verse 11 rather. And uh, what we see there is the first, what I would consider the first element of the Davidic promise. And that is the promise in verse, at the end of verse 11. The Lord will make you a house. And what he's promising to David there, I think, is that I will make your descendants a dynasty over the nation of Israel. And uh, if you look at the promise, the way it's written on the surface, it sounds as though it's unconditional. I'm going to do this. But uh, if you look later in the book of 1 Kings, uh, in verse 4 of that chapter, it reads, If your sons take heed to their way to walk before me in the truth with all their heart and with all their soul, he said, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. So notice that little word, if. It places a condition on the faithfulness of the sons and the descendants of David. So it really is uh, a a, uh, conditional promise. But one of the things that's important to note in the Old Testament, I think, is this same promise, almost word for word, with the if attached, you shall not lack a man to live on the throne of Israel is uh, repeated, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, at least seven other times that I could find. In the book of First Kings, later on, chapter 8, verse 25, chapter 9, verse 5, Second Chronicles six sixteen, Second Chronicles seven eighteen, Psalm one hundred thirty two verse twelve, and Jeremiah verse thirty verse seventeen thirty three verse seventeen. And the significance of the repetition should not be overlooked. He repeated it at least seven times. Very clearly wanted the message to get through to the people of of those days. Uh, and those that lived after David. But also, I think it a, it's a, should be a clear indication to us of the faithfulness of God. He is not forgetful of his promises. In fact, he repeats them over and over. The next element, if you will, of uh, the promise to David uh, is found in verse 12 
uh, and it reads, When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. This is one of those promises that was made to David that had no conditions placed upon it. And it refers to the selection of Solomon as the king to succeed David. And we know in a number of places, but here in 1 Kings chapter 2, that uh, David rested with his fathers, then Solomon sat on the throne of his father David, and his kingdom was firmly established uh, as God had promised, as he had stated. So his, his intent all along was that Solomon would be the king succeeding David. The next element has to do with establishing Solomon's dynasty. Uh, And that is found also uh, in verse 12. And I will establish his kingdom at the end of verse 12. But that particular promise was not unconditional. It had a condition associated with it. If you go on down to verse 14 in that chapter, I will be his father, speaking, God speaking of Solomon, and he shall be my son. If, if, little word, he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. So David son, Solomon, succeeded him. Uh, But we know from the history of the nation of Israel that later on, God, in effect, took away a major portion of the kingdom that had been Solomon's because the ten tribes split off and formed the northern kingdom and David's descendants did not rule over the northern kingdom but only the southern kingdom or the kingdom of Judah. So, David was promised to have a dynasty, but Solomon, over all the nation, and the word is used forever, but Solomon messed that up for his own household because of his sin, and God specifically told him, because of your sin, uh, your your, uh, kingdom will be divided. He told that, of course, to Solomon's son, uh, Rehoboam, later on when he came to the throne. Another element of the promise is, uh, uh, wait a minute, Uh, I I got behind uh, or ahead of myself. He also promised uh, that uh, Solomon would build a house for God's name. You remember that David was told by God he wanted to build the temple. And God told him, you're a man of war, a man of bloodshed, and I will not allow that, but your son, Solomon. And uh, that is given in verse 13. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So there's that promise to establish Solomon's throne forever, but uh, we know that uh, it came to an end at the time of Jesus Christ because Mary is not a descendant of Solomon. She's a descendant 
of Solomon's brother, Nathan. So by birthright, Jesus is a descendant not of Solomon. He is a descendant of David, but of Nathan, one of Solomon's brothers. But God did promise uh, that Solomon would get to build the temple. And it was a very glorious, glorious temple. If you've ever read the description, uh, it's almost fair to call it a gold-plated temple because so much of it was covered with gold, particularly on the inside. But uh, Solomon built the temple according to 1 Kings 6.14. And then the final promise that's found in this is another unconditional promise. The promise is made again to establish his house, that is, his dynasty, his kingdom. And the words go on there. It says that this will be, the end of verse 16, your throne will be established forever. Uh, David's throne was established forever, as we'll observe. Uh, It was first of all Israel, the nation, physically, and then later on, and finally, uh, the spiritual Israel that's described in the New Testament. And his throne, uh, David's throne, uh, is now uh, in... uh, in heaven where Jesus uh, sat down at the right hand of God. And in Luke chapter 1, when the angel Gabriel was speaking to Mary, she said, beginning at verse 31, And behold, you shall conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Highest, The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. And this promise was repeated uh, at other times in the New Testament, particularly in in the book of Isaiah. But the prophets of the Old Testament that followed after David often spoke of the, uh, the, <clears throat> the harm that would come to the nation of Israel from other nations around them. But there was always a second part to that warning, and that is the promise that God would restore a remnant. And he always restored uh, a remnant, which still exists today uh, in a spiritual sense. And I'd like to... Uh, do something to try to illustrate what God has done by his covenants. First of all, this cone represents a slice of history, of human history. Uh, If we look at the covenants that God has given uh, and look at them in the sense of who they applied to, the first covenant with Adam applied to everyone, to all of his descendants. Uh, the second covenant when Noah got off the ark and built an altar to God and the promise that the earth would no more be flooded uh, 
and that God would never again do that, uh, that promise also in the covenant with Noah was for all of his descendants. The same is true of the covenant of Abraham. It was to be uh, applicable as promised. Abraham was promised land. He was promised a nation. He was promised that he would be great. And the seed promise was given to him, which we know from later on in the New Testament, the seed refers to Jesus Christ. So God's promises were for all the descendants of Abraham. And of course, we are, in a spiritual sense, descendants of Abraham and beneficiaries of that seed promise as well. Jacob, the promise of Abraham was passed on down to him, but it was narrowed down. As we see in the cone illustrates, God is narrowing the number of people involved in fulfilling his promise. He narrowed it down to the nation of Israel, which is a smaller number, but is still applied to all of Jacob's descendants. And then he narrowed it down. When Jacob died, he gave his blessing, and he said, Judah will be the kingly tribe. So he narrowed it down to the tribe of Judah, and all of his descendants were uh, at least eligible to be king, and the king always came from the tribe of Judah. And then finally, as we've read here in 2 Samuel chapter 7, he narrows it down further to David's household, to David's descendants uh, only. And so what we see over time is that gradually God is down-selecting those who would be uh, involved in fulfilling his covenant uh, with the people. They were an essential part of his plan. And then finally, of course, we see it comes down to one person, one single man, Jesus Christ, who is the Lord and Savior, who fulfilled all of the promises uh, made to David in that original promise. So we see Hopefully, although briefly, that at least as far as I am concerned, I don't think there's a shadow of a doubt that Jesus uh, fulfills the promise to David that he is David's son, legally and by birth. He inherited David's throne, and I think this proves the faithfulness of God uh, in keeping his promises and all of those promises we see fulfilled uh, in his son, Jesus Christ. Uh, and I'm going to pause there and see if there's any further thoughts or comments that anyone would like to make at this point. Yes. That's a very good, very excellent point. 
Uh, Brother Weaver points out this, this all helps to demonstrate God's patience and how he's willing to work with a broken mankind, really. Man sinned in the garden and from then on uh, continued to make a mess of the world. But yet God was very patient and he still had his plan and his plan would be fulfilled. And he used the tools, the broken tools that were available to him to fulfill that purpose until he came down to the very perfect tool, the man, the divine, uh, the God, Jesus Christ. I did not, <clears throat> I did not think I would get to this point, but I do want to, because I thought I would probably run out of time. But <clears throat> I want to point out some other things about the history of the Davidic covenant and David's kingdom. I'd like to just uh, illustrate uh, two or three ways that uh, attempts were made to destroy David's kingdom and therefore God's kingdom. Uh, One of those is David himself prophesied. It's given here in Psalms chapter 2, starting at verse 1. And he said, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, his anointed being Jesus, of course, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the throne of heaven still laughs. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Now, if you would turn with me to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, beginning at verse 23. This is at the time when uh, Peter and John went into the temple and they healed the blind man and they were arrested uh, by the uh, rulers of the Jews for doing so. In chapter 4 of Acts, starting at verse 23. And so they were let go, and they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voices to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God, who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, and who by the mouth of your servant David, there's that word servant again, and this is found in Psalm chapter 2 that we just read. Why do the nations rage And the people plot vain things. The kings of the earth took their stands and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. So Peter and John are seeing the persecution by the Jewish leaders as fulfillment of this prophecy in Psalm 2. And of course it was further fulfilled in the fact that they took Jesus and murdered him on a a Roman cross. Uh, So the kingdom has, uh, in just in the short time that Jesus was on the earth, 
faced many challenges, uh, Satan stirring up people to try to destroy uh, God's kingdom. And then on the day of Pentecost, uh, in verse 36, Peter said this to the people, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both the Lord and Christ. So your attempts have failed to destroy the kingdom. Uh, God will prevail, and he has uh, prevailed. Uh, this kingdom that he established uh, is indeed forever. And if you think about uh, just the history of the nation of Israel itself, uh, many times foreign powers came in and uh, in some cases actually conquered. But there were many times, many occasions when they came against the Israelites and God destroyed the enemy instead of the other way around, what they were seeking to do. So God protected his kingdom for many years, but finally we know at the uh, Babylonian captivity, even the nation of Judah fell to the Babylonians. And that would appear to have ended David's kingdom once and for all and forever. But David's descendants were still alive. And when the time came right in history, God raised up his son to the throne of David. And we know and have been promised that that indeed is forever. Uh, a kingdom just as he had promised to David. So uh, let me just summarize the things that are found in David's covenant. And uh, the first of all is God did promise to build a house, a dynasty for King David. And he did. God did promise to raise up Solomon as a king to succeed David and his descendants afterwards. And he did. God did establish a dynasty for Solomon, but it lived for a limited, survived for a limited time because of Solomon's sin. Solomon did, as God promised, build the temple for God's name. And Jesus, Son of God, rules forever over the house, over the kingdom, and he sits on the throne of David forevermore before God the Father. And that concludes my thoughts about David's role and, and how it's played out in the New Testament and the promises that were made to him in the covenant. Anyone have any final thoughts or observations about all of this? Yes, Peggy. Right. Well, Peggy, Peggy uh, reminds us all that, uh, first of all, the kingdom, David's kingdom is really Christ's kingdom, and that kingdom is the church, uh, and it's referred to uh, by Paul in his writings, or described as a spiritual Israel, 
So the church is indeed Christ's kingdom. Christ is the king. And uh, going back to the cone, it all God boiled it all down to the one person who would uh, be the ruler over the th- sit on the throne of David, but also the kingdom which is his uh, forever. Uh, yeah, I, I don't want to. Su- I didn't mean to suggest that uh, that it is David's kingdom. Uh, it is, in in one sense, of course, in that Jesus is a descendant of David, but he rules over the kingdom, and it's a very different kingdom than, of course, the one that David ruled over. Other thoughts? Well, thank you for your attention. I didn't see anyone who was nodding off, so I appreciate that very much. Uh, And uh, we will begin a new series of studies starting next Sunday, I believe. Is, are, we on, are you involved in that, James? The book of Hebrews starting next Sunday. So do we start out in Hebrews 1? Okay, so uh, study Hebrews 1 uh, in preparation for next week. Thank you for being here and have a blessed day. Yes, sir. Hey, Gene. I held back. I was going to say, Bill, I will tell you, I thought we are now. When I was going to Bethel, a lot of men, whoever was head of the table, mentioned, present the, the book of Bible Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, they do. Good job. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate your comment. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School. West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.